But first, we are going to talk about some new poll results that take a look at just how comfortable British Columbians are when it comes to getting back to some sense of normal life. And this was a question that was put to Canada's top doctor, Theresa Tam, earlier today as well. You you can't put an absolute date on one of these things, but uh, having had uh, everybody getting the vaccine, that is a massive step towards uh, returning to more normal uh, life. Well, I would say keeping up with your personal, you know, protective measures. Um, The idea is not to, to reduce the need to have the more restrictive public health measures in the community. You know, I, I remain uh, really very hopeful, but we have to go with the data as we as the science evolves as well. That is Dr. Teresa Tam talking about the possibility of re- returning to some form of normal life by September. Let's bring in Mario Canseco now, the president of Research Co. Mario, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill, and I hope your dog is feeling better. He is much better today, thank you. But it was uh, it was pretty scary when uh, he reacted to that yesterday. Uh, want to talk to you about this. Uh, also uh, pretty scary for a lot of people going uh, to restaurants, going out, uh, trying to get back to some form uh, of normalcy. And you're asking people about just where their comfort level is when it comes to doing all of that before vaccination. What did you find? Well, we were expecting a big difference from the numbers that we had back in May of 2020. You know, we were very cautious at the time, not really engaged in a lot of things. Uh, We thought that maybe people, because of what we keep hearing about on social media sometimes, uh, that they're tired of the pandemic, that they want to get back to the way things were. And what's interesting is we don't really see a lot of movement from how we felt in May 2020 on specific things uh, than the way we feel now. So definitely more British Columbians who are looking at the issue of COVID-19 very cautiously and aren't really ready to reopen economic activities because they don't want to be in a stadium, they don't want to go to a concert, and many of them don't want to go to the gym either. Hmm. We talked about this, well, we listened to some of the comments yesterday made by Boris Johnson in the UK, and I think a lot of people heard him say that as as of June 21st in the UK, he wants that country opened up again, and that means the restrictions lifted, concerts taking place, conferences taking place, large-scale gatherings taking place, and for people here, I think, they thought, wow, that sounds amazing to have that back by June 21st, but probably not going to be the same scenario here. Well, it's a difficult situation when you're trying to predict how a pandemic is going to evolve. And we've seen this in other jurisdictions. Donald Trump said that all the cases would be gone by the summer. They weren't. Uh, The president of Mexico said that uh, you just had to be careful and everything would be fine in six months and that the number of deaths in the country would not be higher than 60,000. Now it is higher than 60,000. It's been really cautious on the part of the Canadian authorities uh, to talk about where this pandemic is going to go. I think the one thing that really has been hammered consistently by the government now is that everybody who wants a vaccine will have it before Thanksgiving. But other than that, we haven't really set a date for when life is going to return to normal. And I think politically, it's the wise thing to do. We saw a lot of people who were dissatisfied because their governments kept saying that there was a specific date when COVID-19 would be gone. And it's just 
something that didn't materialize for those who wanted it to happen. Uh, and looking at uh, some of the other places, and I know a lot of people commented when watching Super Bowl and there were so many people live in the stands. And you've asked people about going to a live sporting event and a pretty big uh, 65% say of British Columbians saying they wouldn't be comfortable doing that. Uh, I did find it easy, uh, or sorry, uh, interesting when looking at people willing to go to a gym right now, uh, a pretty good number of people say yes, they would as long as it was regularly cleaned and you could keep your distance from others. Well, what is fascinating to me about this particular question is that it moved to the other side. I was expecting British Columbians to be a little more at ease with certain jurisdictions that have taken steps to make sure that the gyms are properly ventilated, that you have the cleaning in place, that you can socially distance when you're using the machines. And it's actually up 13 points. It's 60% now who say they don't want to visit a gym or a fitness facility unless they have been vaccinated. Obviously, a little bit more concern with those over the age of 35. Uh, but it's definitely not a situation where there's a sense of urgency from British Columbians to go back to their fitness routines. You know, we've seen before uh, a lot of people who are walking out more, people who got a dog because they wanted to walk more, people who got specific fitness equipment for their home. We seem to be comfortable with this course of action before we're ready to go back to gyms. I'm also surprised by the number of people who say they wouldn't visit a restaurant and eat indoors unless they've been vaccinated. And I'll fully admit, I've talked about this on the air. I've been going to restaurants since they've been open and have been very pleased with where I've gone as far as the protocols in place. And a lot of times they've been busy. They've been at, at, at COVID capacity. So clearly there are people going out, but also people very concerned about that. Well, it's still uh, certainly a high proportion of British Columbians who are not willing to do this. Uh, it used to be 32% when we asked in May who would not go to a restaurant. Now it's up to 35%. So it's a little bit higher than it was back in May. Uh, but it's also a cause for concern when you're looking at some of these restaurants. You know, there's been a way to try to make some of that revenue uh, with delivery, and it's not something that is happening also that much because the last time we checked, there's one in five British Colombians who say, I'm not ordering food at all because I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to get COVID-19 that way. So the messaging about being open certainly helps, and there's been a lot of efforts from the lobby groups that are dealing with the restaurant industry uh, to try to get people back into restaurants. But this is something that is in the mindset of many British Colombians. They want to get that vaccine, and then gradually they'll go back to certain economic activities. Uh, you also asked people their thoughts on how to reopen the economy. What did you see compared to May uh, and now? Well, there's more British Columbians uh, who believe that we should take things slowly. When we asked back in May, it was 63%. Now it's 65%. So essentially two-thirds of British Columbians who say, we're not there yet. We go back to the level of cases that we had back in May, and it was nowhere near what we have now. And there was an expectation that when the summer rolled around, we will be able to do different things. Uh, the appetite that we hear sometimes on social media uh, related to just reopening everything for the sake of doing it is not something that is shared by many British Colombians. There's definitely some who would like to see things open more quickly. But by a two to one margin, people are saying we're doing fine. We have to take it slow. It's going to be a few more weeks and months, uh, but it's not the type of situation where we can say goodbye to everything that we've done over the past year. Uh, any uh, any number stick out to you uh, as particularly surprising? The one thing that has been consistent, uh, not only here in British Columbia, uh, but also across the country, 
is how many women are feeling that we should take things slowly. It's been consistently there. We've seen a higher proportion of women who are always wearing a mask when they go out, who are very careful about um, how they do things when they go outside of their homes, and also are more likely now to say, let's reopen economic activity slowly. So there is a nurturing nature from women uh, that is definitely welcome at a situation like this uh, when we have men who are more likely to be saying it's been enough sacrifice and I want to go back to the things that I used to do uh, before this pandemic was here. So uh, thank you to all the women in the province for keeping those guys honest. (laughs) All right, uh, Mario, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Always good to talk with you. My pleasure, Gil, anytime. Well, a lot of people have been watching this play out and Uber has now responded to what its future in the UK might look like after a ruling in the UK. It finds that Uber drivers, according to the court, is cl- are classified as workers, not contractors, as the company has claimed in the past. So what exactly does this mean? Let's bring in Lior Samfiru, employment lawyer and partner at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. Also representing drivers in a class action lawsuit against Uber in Ontario. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. What is your response to the ruling in the UK? It's certainly uh, one that is not of surprise in the sense that we expected to see results like that in the UK and elsewhere. Uh, Obviously, we're happy and relieved that that is the result. But to us, really, any other result would be almost illogical here, the way that Uber to date has chosen to operate, to run its operations, especially to control its drivers, the level of control, I think lends to really only one conclusion, and that is that those drivers are not really in business for themselves. They are employees in the eyes of the law of Uber. And we believe that that result that uh, in the UK will end up being the result here in Canada. The law really is the same in terms of distinguishing employees and contractors. The law is the same in the UK as it is in Canada. So we think that that decision will certainly impact the outcome eventually in Canada when the matter eventually goes to court. Uh, one of one part of Uber's response to this is saying that the company itself has changed a lot since 2016, when, which is when this case was first filed, and that they've made significant changes to their operations. So how do you respond to that? Well, certainly, based on what I've seen in Canada, that is far, far from being the case. If, any, if anything, they exert even more control over their drivers. There's more requirements about being an Uber driver and, and what happens if you don't perform uh, to standard and you know what penalties Uber can impose on you. And I actually believe that having those standards is, is the right thing because Uber does have an obligation to make sure that the drivers do a proper job and that the public is protected. But it can't have it both ways. It can't say, no, no, we're not the employer, but we're going to dictate everything and anything to do with these drivers. So I have not seen any changes. If anything, over the past number of years, Uber has become more strict and have more rules for its drivers. So if drivers in Ontario or in Canada were employees in 2016 and 17, they're certainly employees now in 2021. What would the difference be then, and just just for so I can understand it better, what would the difference be, say, from a franchise? Somebody owns a franchise of a company. They have to follow all of the rules of the company. They, they can't you know, paint the, the logo a different color. They can't do anything different with the product. And, and they're 
basically a, a contractor or are they are they an employee uh, compared to if you work for Uber are are you you have to follow all of the rules but then Uber on the on the other side of that says you're actually a contractor. Well, if you think about all Uber says that it does, it says that it's in the business of connecting uh, consumers with its drivers. We, you know, we simply connect person that needs a service with those willing to provide that service. But the reality is that they do a lot more than that. They dictate how much these drivers get paid, the routes that they take. Uh, Uber is the one actually paying them. Uh, you know, the, the payment goes to Uber and Uber pays them. It dictates different rates at different times. That level of control is so extensive that it doesn't really differentiate Uber drivers from someone that actually has a regular job. Uh, now, franchise, those individuals that are, are uh, own a franchise still have the ability to run their business, to schedule people, to hire people, to fire people. Uh, they're in business for themselves. Uber drivers cannot do that. I can't decide today, if I'm an Uber driver, that I'm not going to go work for Uber. I'm going to hire someone to take my place today. No. Uber says, you're the only one, uh, Lior, that's allowed to drive. Well, that's what an employment relationship looks like. Uh, so if you look like an employee and you act like an employee, then in law, you have to be an employee. What are the main issues as far as the case here in Canada? And I'm imagining that they were guessing that there, there are some similar issues that led to this case and this ruling in the UK. What were the, the concerns wages? Was it how drivers were being treated, protections? What kind of, uh, pardon the pun, has driven drivers to go and want these changes? Well, if you are an employee, that, that classification comes with the whole host of rights and entitlements. The right to receive minimum wage. A lot of drivers receive less than minimum wage. The right to get vacation pay, overtime pay, termination and severance pay. There's an entire host of, of rights and entitlements that employees have that contractors don't have. And if, in fact, we're right and Uber drivers have been misclassified, then they have not been provided for many years across Canada and beyond with those entitlements. And many, many, many of these drivers feel that that is wrong, that they should be able to earn at least minimum wage in the province that they work and that they should get vacation pay. And if Uber decides to stop employing them, that there should be consequences and entitlements that flow from that. So a lot of the drivers are on site here. They want to be treated fairly. Or they would say to Uber, fine, we don't have to be employees. We're happy to be contractors. But then you have to treat us like contractors. The problem has always been that Uber has wanted to have its cake and eat it too, to treat people like employees but not actually have employees and that simply is not possible. Right, because there's, there must be some drivers as well that are okay with the way things are right now, saying this is what we signed up for. We knew what we were signing up for. I don't want to be an employee. I want to be a contractor. They absolutely are, and, and we cannot discount that. But here's the thing, that the only one that can decide the status of someone, the only one that can decide whether someone is an employee or a contractor is the law, our, 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 our courts, our, our government agencies, the law can only decide that. I can't decide what someone is. A person can't decide what they are. You can imagine the, the, the potential slippery slope if people can simply decide to call themselves independent contractor. Well, if that was possible, every employee, think, take the most obvious employee, someone working at a fad, fast food restaurant or at a warehouse, well, they can be independent contractors as well. It doesn't work that way. So what you call yourself or even what you believe that you are ultimately does not factor into the analysis. 
if you have a regular job that someone controls, if you have to abide by their rules, if they uh, ultimately tell you what to do and how much you get paid, you are an employee in the eyes of the law, regardless of what you may have signed. Uh, This will have ramifications, I'm sure. The one obvious one being it's going to cost Uber more to make people employees or to treat people like employees. Uh, Does it not also have implications, though, on the drivers as far as your taxes change and things change if you're an employee rather than a contractor? Absolutely. Certainly, uh, you know, drivers that are employees have to file taxes like employees. They would get T4s like, like the rest of us and would have to file their taxes that way. The problem that all these drivers are taking right now, not through any fault of their own, is that because they've been misclassified, they are right now filing their taxes as independent contractors. If and when they're ever audited by CRA, CRA would look at it and say, well, wait a second, you're not truly an independent contractor, so we're going to impose fines and penalties and and back taxes on you. So even for the drivers from a, a tax standpoint, it makes sense for them to be treated the way they truly are, or they actually may face, uh, may face tax consequences. And is that, is that something you think, too? Uh, I haven't heard of that being talked about a ton, in that drivers might be under the impression that if they were audited or if it came to that, it's Uber that would be paying the extra, not them. Well, the, both Uber and the drivers would have liability. So Uber may be penalized for not withholding and remitting taxes, but the drivers who may have deducted certain expenses that they would not otherwise be uh, allowed to deduct, they may be uh, penalized for that and they may have to get pay or to pay back tax deductions that they otherwise received. So it absolutely makes sense for the drivers to get this right. And I've, I've been advising Uber drivers in the interim, while you're still classified as an independent contractor, Pay your taxes straight up. Don't try to get any deductions. Assume you are an employee because you don't want to get into trouble with the CRA. That's really not a a pleasant spot to be in. So that's what I've been advising drivers uh, all along. Uh, You mentioned the the case that you're involved with here in Canada. Does the UK case then have an impact on that or what do you think is next for that one? Absolutely. I I think that uh, a court here uh, in Canada, any court, is going to absolutely look at that decision in the UK. It's going to have what we call persuasive value. It's not binding on the court in Canada, but it has absolutely persuasive effect. And I I do not imagine that a court here is going to stray very far from that UK decision. The next step in this case, uh, we have a court date in June of this year to have the class action properly certified. And then we're going to go ahead and deal with the, the main issue, which is, are these drivers, in fact, employees or contractors? All right. Uh, Lior, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much for being with us. All right. Do you remember this story? And then when I heard what was being said, I took it a step further and told them to uh, pack their things and leave because you're not welcome in this uh, neighborhood. He broke my leg on purpose. Uh, and, and threw me to the ground and took his microphone back. The Bible says a man, a woman shouldn't correct a man. So go home and talk to your husband. So that was just a little bit of a story done by Global News after that exchange in the West End where uh, Justin Morissette, a young man, decided he had heard enough of the amplified views of the street preacher, grabbed the microphone, a fight ensued, and Morissette ended up having a broken leg. Uh, Dore Love, the preacher, has spoken out uh, several times since then, defending what he's been doing and the fact that he had been doing that for some time, not only in the West End, but elsewhere 
as well. Well, that particular exchange and that story has led to a motion coming before Vancouver City Council. And this has to do with the amplification of, well, just about anything when it comes to city streets and looking at enhancing the enforcement of amplification devices. But not everybody agrees that's the best way to go about fixing the problem here. And perhaps there needed to be more consultation before this idea was even floated. So joining me on the line to talk more about some of the concerns about what is being discussed and probably voted on tomorrow at Vancouver City Council is Megan McDermott, who is the Interim Policy Director with the BC Civil Liberties Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is uh, one of those topics where it sounds like we're, we're kind of talking about two different things. We're talking about amplification, amplified speaking in public, and Vancouver City Council is going to look at that. But we're also looking at exactly what was said during an altercation that involved this. What is your take on what's at the heart of this issue? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, there's free expression, Um at the heart of it. But I think that there's also an issue of discrimination and potentially hate speech towards um, LGBTQ2S plus communities, um, which have already faced so much discrimination in Canada. So yeah, there's, there's two issues at the heart of it. Um, So what council is looking at is uh, the enforcement or enhanced enforcement. This is part of the policy they're going to be looking at. The enhanced enforcement of amplification devices uh, by the chief license inspector, general uh, manager of engineering, uh, looking at possibly bringing in more fines or or making it so it's not okay to have an amplification device on a city street in certain uh, scenarios. Uh, Are you opposed to that motion itself or that idea that they want to stop people from amplifying? Yes, yes, just really cut and dry. BCCLA sees absolutely no reason um, for trying to capture amplification devices or people that want to amplify their voice or their music. We, we're afraid that there's going to be um, bad outcomes from it, that it's you know too broad in scope, too, too blunt an instrument, and is going to end up capturing um, a lot of really beneficial things for society. Um, um, musicians, um, people wanting to get political messages out, um, obviously demonstrations, protests. Um, we're afraid that if this motion is passed, it's going to capture and, and penalize um, people that it shouldn't. Uh, does it is it something else that should be dealt with then and again this case came forward based really on on the altercation that happened in the west end and people that lived in the west end that were getting tired of listening to what they classified as hate speech uh, the the preachers yelling into the the amplified device it really came from that uh, do you think there's a place then is there a, a noise bylaw to be had is there is there some way to deal with people that have complaints about noise when we're not necessarily talking about what it is that's being amplified. Yeah, that it's really interesting because it seems that in in this case, what's at issue and a lot of people found objectionable was the content mm-hmm. um, and possibly also the volume, right? But but really, it was the content. And I remember when everything went down, there was even um, there was gosh, there were some media stories about how. Um, the, the police might not even have enough enforcement tools or might not be able to um, charge the person with hate speech, if, the, if that is indeed what they were committing. Um, and I think the mayor even at the time was, you know, speculating about a lack of powers, which obviously now we see them trying to fill this gap. But I'm not sure that there's a lack of powers here. Um, so, for instance, we do have, 
uh, noise bylaws um, that could apply to this situation. I'm reading it as it comes down to maybe an enforcement issue where it's very, very easy. They're wanting to give themselves the power that if you have an amplification device, then that's it. Like, then an offense has been committed and police or park rangers or bylaw enforcement officers can then seize that and prevent you from using it um, in public spaces in our city. Um, but I don't see at all why that's required, because as it is, we have some thresholds laid out in noise bylaws. Um, so I think it may just come down to um, how difficult it might be to prove that somebody's exceeded those. Um, and so they're looking at kind of like an, an easy workaround instead of maybe measuring the decibel levels um, they'll just see that somebody has a megaphone, somebody has a speaker, and that's it. They've broken the law. Um, And again, that's not really how the law should work, right? If we're afraid about volume, we know that with amplification devices, they wouldn't necessarily pass a certain threshold um, of the decibel limits that are already in the law. Um, Now, when it comes to the content of the speech, um, I am aware there was a complaint made to the Vancouver Police Department saying, why didn't you you enforce the laws, you do have hate speech laws that you can enforce. And I've seen a report to the police board where the VPD is saying that they, they've assessed the content of the speech and they don't think that it met the level um, of hate speech. So in that regard, that, that's a criminal law um, about the content of speech. Um, if the issue really is, um, if people are offended by the nature of this speech, then what we need to look to is amending that law, right? Mm. Not... not not add more laws about what kind of devices you're using because um, it's kind of a disingenuous approach, really. It, it seems to me the underlying issue here is that they, the city wants to be seen to doing, be doing something so that it's a safe place for um, everybody in the community. Um, but they're, they're just going about it in a, in a strange way. Right, because that was what kind of struck me too, and I don't know all of the ins and outs of all of the laws, but I do know in the past we've talked about how buskers in some scenarios, or at least they used to have to get a permit, especially if they were going to be in a certain part of the city and use amplification, depending on what they were going to do. Uh, Parades need permits to go through and and are very loud. Uh, But in this particular case, if the goal is to stop something like this from happening again, and we're talking about the content of the speech, then even if this new bylaw, if this new policy came into place, there would be nothing to stop somebody like uh, the, the man who was uh, on the sidewalk using the amplification to, to say those things. There would be nothing to stop him or somebody like him from standing on the corner and screaming it at the top of his lungs, which would also be really loud. Exactly. Exactly. And would be similarly offensive, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, he's saying the same thing. So it's not really getting at, at the issue. <laughs> I mean, presuming he could probably scream really loud and it would probably disturb the neighborhood and really offend a lot of people and cause a lot of harm. Um, but yeah, as you say, that this this isn't really the proper tool. And again, it comes back to are we are we trying to to stop the content of what's being said? Are we trying to quiet down what is being said? And I know in the release that, that BC Civil Liberties put out, uh, there was uh, the calling on, on the fact that they didn't feel the group didn't feel there was enough consultation. Do you think we need to have more conversations about this and figure out exactly what it is uh, we're trying to, to trying to fix what's broken and what we're trying to fix here? Yeah, I find a lot when government does things, they, they have really, they don't reach out much to communities. So in the internal report, 
under consultation, it only talked about the police department's response. <laughs> it's like, wow, this affects so many more. Like, what about the people in that community? Like, did they reach out to anybody um, from last summer who had to listen to that? Um, e- even the people who um, were assaulted in an altercation with them, I don't even think that um, one of the victims of an assault is supportive of this. Um, they certainly did not reach out to community groups like ours who look out for free expression issues and all, and um, also human rights issues. So um, I, again and again, I just love to see government really be much more transparent when they're trying to find solutions to issues um, and be more thoughtful and, and open and really listen to the voices in the community and not just the police department. All right, uh, Megan McDermott. Uh, we'll leave it there for today, but appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thanks for talking about this issue and have a great day. All right. I talked about this a bit earlier and I'm not one to usually bring my own personal experiences to the job, but I posted about this happening to me last night and the amount of feedback that I got from people, dog owners saying, yeah, I've had that happen to my dog too. This seems to be happening more often. Uh, Mentioned earlier that yesterday, well, at the Vanier Park off-leash dog park, I was there with my dog, Mo, who's a 25-pound who knows what he is. Uh, we're having a great time. He was with me the whole time. Suddenly he looks up. His eyes have both rolled back into his head. They've gone completely in different directions. He's starting to wobble and he's breathing really funny, not breathing well at all. I call my veterinarian. She says, yeah, get your dog to the emergency vet hospital. I race Mo to the hospital where a test is done and he tests positive for yeah marijuana uh, test positive and anecdotally hear from the vet saying, yeah, we're getting more cases of this. This is happening more often. So I thought it would be interesting to talk not only about that, which we are going to talk to a lawyer a bit later on in the program about accountability and marijuana in public, but also about the warning signs and what dog owners need to be aware of if they are in this type of scenario. And I'm so pleased to say that Lauren Adelman has agreed to join us, an internal medicine specialist at Canada West Veterinary Specialist, to talk more about this. Lauren, thanks for being with us. Hi, you're very welcome, and I hope Mo is doing better. <laughs> he is. It was uh, pretty terrifying, especially the way his eyes went and the breathing, uh, but they were great uh, and uh, said to monitor him. So monitored him uh, throughout the night, and he seems to be much, much better today. So that's good, uh, good news. But again, getting uh, feedback from so many people saying they had very uh, similar situations uh, in cases where their pets have almost died. How dangerous is it when a dog does ingest marijuana? Yeah, so I think it's absolutely expected that with the legalization of marijuana, we were going to see an increase in cases, and that's definitely the case. Marijuana THC toxicity is one of the most common toxicities we see in the veterinary emergency. Um, the the compound THC, which is the psychoactive component of marijuana, is extremely toxic to pets, and they have a lot more receptors for it in their brains than people do. So, you know, when THC toxicity happens, it can be quite dangerous, and it really depends on the size of the dog and the amount ingested. It can be anything from very subtle signs. You know, most often, as you mentioned, it almost looks neurologic in nature, like they look drunk, they have a wobbly gait, they seem to be out of it, pupils really dilated, um, dribbling urine is also a very common sign. But but when it happens, it can really vary from just mild signs like that to, to even coma and seizures, and in rare cases, death. 
Uh, a couple of people were sharing uh, their thoughts on this and asked, oh, did, did they make the, the dog throw up? How did they treat it? How does a veterinarian go about treating this when a dog comes in showing this? So it depends on the clinical signs that are being shown and the time of ingestion. So, for instance, if a dog comes in right after eating a pot brownie and the owners are very upfront about that, we can induce vomiting to try and get, you know, the majority of it out of the stomach. But, you know, unfortunately, by the time most dogs show clinical signs, which is often when they're brought into the clinic, it can be hours since the initial ingestion. And so if that's the case and also if they're showing depression or neurologic signs we don't necessarily want to make them vomit because it can be dangerous and in an obtunded patient so sometimes we make them vomit a lot of the time we use activated charcoal which is kind of binds the toxic component thc Um, we can also give enemas to try and clear it out of the system and the biggest thing is really supportive care you know if the patient is you know out of it not eating not drinking on their own we need to be able to provide them the supportive care fluids maintain their body temperatures and all those important things Uh, is it something that can have long-term effects or is it something that you get it out of their system and then generally speaking they're fine Most of the time, I would say it's acute in nature. It's not going to cause chronic consequences. The only, um, you know, the only situation would be, say, if it leads to one of those really severe cases where it leads to seizures. Um, But that would be the exception to the rule, I would say. Most cases, you know, once it's out of their system, once they recover. But, you know, that process can take several days sometimes. uh, They usually go back to their normal self. And what is it that dogs, you mentioned that they have more receptors. Are there certain types of marijuana? if they come across it uh, that they're more drawn to in that in this case I didn't see him eat anything and and which was strange to me is Mo I have a lab as well who will eat anything off the ground (laughs) Uh, but Mo is more Mo is a kind of dog that doesn't he's not a a food driven dog so I didn't see him eat it I, I still don't know what exactly he ate but what are dogs most drawn to? Yeah, so I would say definitely edibles. You know, one of the biggies is people mix marijuana in with chocolate. So then you have a double whammy. You're not only getting THC toxicity, but you're also getting chocolate toxicity. So edibles, you know, for your other dog who's food motivated, you know, they can take down two or three brownies in one go. And we know that the concentration of edibles in or THC in edibles is often quite high. But the other big thing that dogs will ingest is that, you know, the butt of the marijuana that that are left on the ground so you know what people call the roaches um, they'll often and don't don't ask me why but that's a very common thing they'll kind of lick it up and that contains a large concentration as well and you mentioned the size of dogs and I would imagine it goes to to a bigger dog can probably handle more or or does it then go to the bigger dogs have even more receptors you know, I think with any toxicity, size of the dog does matter. Um, you know, bigger dogs can handle more. But in general, with how sensitive dogs are as a species to THC, even a very small amount in a big dog can definitely cl- cause clinical signs. Uh, I've covered this story before. And, and in fact, it was, I think, before the legalization or maybe around there, when at that time, too, talking to some veterinarians who said they'd noticed an increase in these cases, but also said people in some scenarios were reluctant to bring their pets in if it had happened in their house, if they got into to their own because they, they felt guilty or they didn't want to admit that. Uh, do you find that people are reluctant to do that? I would say historically that was more of a concern when it wasn't legal. You know, we'd have to pry it out of people like we're not here to judge you. We just want to know. Um, nowadays, I think people are more open. And I would say that if, if you're still, you know, you have that shame or stigma associated with it, we don't care. Like, just tell us so that we can jump, you know, don't have to 
spend all your money on doing a million different tests and we can, you know, jump to the treatment. And so I think if you're concerned or if there's been an exposure, always, always safest to come have your dog evaluated and talk to your veterinarian. And when you talk about the tests, how accurate are the tests when you're trying to figure out if in fact it is marijuana that the dog has ingested? So there are tests like send out tests that are accurate in dogs, but those take several days to come back. Most of what you're talking about and probably what your dog had done is a urine, human urine drug test that tests for THC amongst other things. And those tests can be pretty finicky in pets. They're not always 100% reliable. You can get false negatives and false positives. However, most of the time we're relying on history and clinical uh, exam findings. You know, if you have a potential history of exposure or if the dog's fitting, you know, hyperreactive, dilated pupils, dribbling urine, I mean, we oftentimes make a diagnosis just based on that. Right. And you mentioned too, you've seen an increase in this sense legalization. Um, How much or, or has it been a very noticeable increase? I would say it's definitely been noticeable. I mean, it's always been there. THC toxicity has always been there. But I would say, you know, when I look at our, um, you know, our our hospitalized patients, it's not uncommon to have a patient that's had THC exposure in the hospital. Like we definitely get them every few days, weeks, like they're common. They're really common. If you're going to say any toxicity out there, that would be one of the most common that we see. And the advice, I guess, obviously, if it's in the house to to keep it away from from dogs, but in my case, too, and again, many of the people that have reached out and shared their stories, I mean, what can you do other than just know that it's in the parks, people are being careless with it. But aside from that, aside from not letting your dog go out in these areas, I was kind of stumped thinking, well, what do you do? It's so hard. Like, I guess I would say there's definitely certain areas that you're going to notice people leave their butts around more often. Obviously, educating owners and non-pet owners that, hey, this is a real danger. Maybe, you know, take your roach with you, dispose of it elsewhere. However, you know, when it comes to those areas, so say you do take your dog to a dog park and it's your dog park and there are, you know, you've had two or three exposures there before. One option that you could do is actually use like a basket muzzle when you're at the park um, so that they can't ingest it. I know one of the people I work with um, did actually have that type of situation where her her Bernadoodle kept getting into the butts at the same park and that's the park she exercises him at every morning. So she just started using a basket muzzle just while he was there to prevent uh, ingestion. All right, uh, Lauren, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. You're so welcome. And I'm glad we're getting the word out there again. It's an important subject.